Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 3. We're going to start this podcast with a few verses from the Hebrew text of Genesis, Chapter 1. Bereshith bara Elohim et hashamayim vehataaretz, vaaretz hayatatohu wabohu wachoshech al pene hatehom, veruach Elohim mirachefet al pene hamayim, vayomer Elohim yehi or, vachaya or. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was a lifeless waste and darkness was on the face of the deep, and a wind from God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. What I've just read could keep us busy for days, perhaps weeks, but I'll spare you that and start out with a simple question. Apart from the Torah, the law presented in the Bible, how many law books do you know that begin with the story of the creation of the world? There's a reason for that, and it goes back to the role played by creation stories in the ancient Near East. Creation stories were political statements intended to establish the legitimacy of the speaker or the god or whoever was recounting his works. They were a universally accepted framework within which one stated one's working assumptions and core values. In other civilizations, both in and out of the ancient Near East, you find creation stories used to justify or legitimize political rule, kingship, or as a kind of magical act to invoke the creative powers of creation to strengthen and revitalize the community, particularly during rites enacted as part of the celebration of the New Year. The ancients viewed the cosmos as an extension of the political order, if, in fact, they saw any real distinction between them. Political upheaval was cosmic, and cosmic disruption was connected to political incompetence or malfeasance. We still see traces of this today, when natural disasters are blamed on various aspects of human misbehavior. There are numerous biblical references to creation outside of Genesis, If you look at the context of some of these accounts, many of them are found within or immediately preceding discussions or acts that concern national politics or forming of nations, mostly, but not always, Israel. The creation of nations and kingdoms is often expressed as an extension of the cosmic order. This helps us understand why the law starts with a creation story, which is a very strange thing to find in a modern law book. But Genesis is not just about the creation of the earth. It's about the creation of Israel, the people, and the nation. Here are a couple of examples of some extra-biblical creation and politics passages. The first is from Psalm 33, starting in verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea as in a bottle. He put the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. 
Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be, he commanded, and it stood forth. Now we get political. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to naught. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Here's another example. This one is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, verses 6 and following. Thou art the Lord, thou alone, thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. Immediately thereafter, Nehemiah talks about God giving Abram the land of the Canaanites, and immediately after that, how God came down to Mount Sinai and essentially gave the law to the Israelites. This is universally acknowledged by biblical and Jewish scholars as the moment when God, in effect, created the nation of Israel. Now consider that the version of Genesis we have in our Bibles received its final editorial shape during the Babylonian exile, when Israel did not have a national presence, no king, no ruling body, no national identity, and a God who had disgraced himself in the international community by allowing his holy city to be sacked and his temple demolished. Nevertheless, Genesis embodies not only the proclamation of an exiled nation reasserting itself, it almost insolently takes issue with the prevailing Babylonian theology and worldview. What was that worldview? Let's look at what we might call the opposite number of the Genesis cosmogony, the Babylonian Epic of Creation, also known as the Enuma Elish. It is the story of how the main god of Babylon, Marduk, thwarts an effort by the older gods of Chaos, Tiamat and Mumu, to destroy the younger disruptive gods. Here are a few passages. When on high the heaven had not been named, firm ground below had not been called by name, when primordial Apsu their begetter, and Mumu Tiamat, she who bore them all, their waters mingled as a single body. No reed hut had sprung forth, no marshland had appeared, none of the gods had been brought into being, and none bore a name, no destinies determined. Then it was that the gods were formed in the midst of heaven. Now as the animosity between Marduk and the older gods grows, Marduk slays Mumu, the spouse of Tiamat, who then marshals and prepares her forces. Sharp of tooth, unsparing of fang, with venom for blood she has filled their bodies. Roaring dragons she has clothed with terror, has crowned them with halos, making them like gods. So that he who beholds them is overcome by terror, their bodies rear up, and none can withstand their attack. She has set up the viper, the dragon, the sphinx, the great lion, the mad dog, and the scorpion man mighty lion demons, the flying dragon, the centaur, bearing weapons that spare not, fearless in battle. The battle is joined, and Marduk and Tiamat go mano y mano. She recites a charm, keeps casting her spell, while the gods of battle sharpen their weapons. Then Tiamat and Marduk joined issue, wisest of gods. They strove in single combat, locked in battle. The Lord spread out his net to enfold her. 
The evil wind which followed behind he let loose in her face. When Tiamat opened her mouth to consume him, he drove the east wind, while as yet she had not shut her lips. As the terrible winds filled her belly, her body was distended and her mouth was wide open. He released the arrow. It tore her belly. It cut through her insides, splitting the heart. Having thus subdued her, he extinguished her life. He cast down her carcass to stand upon it. In the verses that follow, Marduk shapes the cosmos from Tiamat's dead body. He splits the carcass in two. Half becomes the heaven, half becomes the earth, and her blood becomes the waters, the seas, and the rivers. think the Babylonian view of creation is messy, consider their view of the creation of humanity. In another religious text called the Atrahasis epic, the lesser gods must slave away at the endless dirty task of removing silt from the irrigation canals, making mud brick for the temples, and various other tedious back-breaking labor. Finally, they rebel against their divine overlords. When the dust settles, there are some concessions made. The gods decide to create humanity to take over the drudgery that was once the lot of the gods. The ringleaders of the revolt are executed, and their blood mixed with clay to form humans. In this worldview, humans are a tool to do the dirty work of maintaining civilization. They are the product of mud and the blood of rebellious gods. Theirs is a life of hard toil, and then they die. Now look at the contrast found in Genesis. The creation of humanity is the culminating event of the creative process. Humans are created in the image of God, and what's more, a special verb, bara in Hebrew, is used to describe this creation. This is a verb in which God is always the subject. In other words, anything created in this way is special and divine. The verb is repeated three times in Genesis 1 verse 27, a punctuation that drives home the idea that humanity is anything but a tool for the convenience of uncaring deity. Genesis continues, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. So let's compare the two world views. Where the Babylonian gods emerged or were born, Elohim, the god of Genesis, is self-existent. There is no theogony. He is simply there. Marduk of Babylon has multiple rivals or allies whom he must contend with or placate. Elohim in Genesis has no rivals, with only sidelong allusions to others in the heavenly realm. Marduk creates by combat and destruction followed by a reordering. Elohim creates by fiat. He speaks, and it's done. Babylonian man is a tool, little better than a drone. 
Humanity in Genesis is not just a divine creation, but as we will see, actually a partner in the creative process. Incidentally, we need to talk a little bit about the idea of chaos as the opposite of cosmos or creation. What is chaos? It's matter or substance that is undifferentiated. It's dark, cold, wet, but most of all it is hostile to life. Nothing grows or flourishes when chaos has the upper hand. If you want a good visceral understanding of the ancient idea of chaos, go find and contemplate a large, paved, empty parking lot on a dark night in the pouring rain, preferably a parking lot without lines. So let's continue with Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. This is the mandate of humanity. This section is one of the most important in the Old Testament. It is, in effect, a charter. Humans are a special creation. Their role is to carry on and, indeed, even complete the creation that God had started by replenishing the earth. This means that they are to continue the reduction of chaos, the inability to support life, and to civilize the world. In other words, humans are created as much for the benefit of the world as the world is created for the benefit of humanity. Now we come to a couple of words here that are uncomfortable for a lot of modern readers. One of them is subdue and the other one is have dominion. I'm not particularly fond of the word subdue as a choice for this particular translation. I like the word master. Uh, as in the sense that a good musician masters the piano rather than subdues it. Although maybe they subdue it if they burn their guitar after a concert or something. But what is dominion? A baseline answer is that it is the exercise of power needed to carry out the mandate of humanity and so to complete the creative process. Moreover, they are to do as much as possible their creating in the same way that God has done in the preceding verses. In other words, by making the world amenable to life. The only thing that God reserves for himself is the prerogative to give or take life. An important study by Jeremy Cohen indicates that ancient interpreters of Genesis 1 verse 28 did not see the call to have dominion as a license for exploitation. He also points out that this interpretation did not become commonplace until roughly the onset of the Industrial Revolution. In many a royal inscription from the ancient Near East, kings boasted that they had brought prosperity and fertility to their realms. That was a sign that their dominion had divine sanction. Remember, this is a culture in which political prosperity was inextricably tied up with the cosmic order. 
So God does not hand over full control over creation to humanity. There is still one sphere that he keeps for himself, and that is the power over life, both giving it and taking it. When God gave humans their instructions about what they could use, animals are noticeably off the list. And here's an important detail. Later, after Adam and Eve are ejected from paradise, God makes clothing out of skins for them. Why does God do this and not Adam and Eve? Because Adam and Eve were still forbidden from taking animal life. That was still God's prerogative and God's alone. Here are some other examples of God's control over life, death, and fertility. Humans as vegetarians and God making clothing of skins for Adam and Eve we've already mentioned. Another is the fact that murder is a sin. That may seem obvious, but in this context it makes particularly good sense. When God talks to Abraham about making him a great nation, he uses the phrase, I will multiply you, not you will multiply. Rachel, when she is having trouble conceiving a child, says to Jacob, Give me children or I will die. Jacob responds to Rachel, Am I God? And later, we read that God opened the womb of Rachel so that she could have children. Throughout the Old Testament, in the interactions between God and humanity, and in the legal code, there is always this ideological undercurrent of life triumphant over death. Life must and will prevail because it is God's sole province. Later, when we get to the legal material, we'll see that this idea is implicit in the purity laws as a kind of object lesson, and it informs much of the thinking behind what we would call social justice regulations in the Bible. When the Bible envisions a perfect world, it is full of life and living things, where neither animals nor humans exploit each other. Eden is the prototype, as in this passage from Isaiah. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. Of course, paradise, by definition, is elusive and transitory. In our next segment, we'll learn how it all went wrong, but how the process of creation continued. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.